You are listening to an MLGA Network podcast. Welcome to Voluntary Vixens, where Jesse and Maddie give a female voice to news and pop culture with a libertarian twist. Join us to stay informed and challenged while keeping it sane, peaceful, and most importantly, voluntary. Hey, everybody. Um, this is Maddie. <laughs> You're listening to the Voluntary Vixens. Uh, we've got a very special episode for you. Um, Jesse, of course, is with me here, and she joined me on this really like unexpectedly awesome and easy to have conversation with Jeffrey Tucker, who, if you don't know, is the editorial director of the American Institute for Economic Research. He's a writer, speaker, lecturer, entrepreneur, um, a promoter of the Austrian School of Economics, libertarian philosophy, anarcho-capitalism, um, and cool bow ties. Yep. <laughs> Definitely the bow ties. Um, per usual, he was rocking one uh, in our interview we had with him last week. So uh, we're recording this a little bit later uh, for the intro for you all. But wanted to guys give you guys a heads up. Uh, there were some audio issues that we thought we had resolved before we started recording, but it doesn't appear that they did. And so there may be, you know, less than perfect quality audio on this uh, interview we have with him but our guys behind the scenes you know they do great work for us and i'm hoping that they can work enough magic so that it's a pleasant to listen to interview because and and when i say interview i'm you know being pretty um general about that because you know jesse and i aren't really interviewers we just like to talk yeah (laughs) we like to have conversations but anyway, so yeah, wanted to give you guys a heads up on the potential for subpar audio. Um, you know, we do try our best always to make sure that what you're listening to is both good in terms of quality, like content wise and, um, you know, just listenability, if that's a word. And it was such an important conversation that we wanted to just go ahead and try and release it. And I hope you guys get as much out of the interview or the conversation as we did. So with further ado, or without further ado, <laughs> enjoy the ride. Hello, everyone. Actually, okay, now it's recording. Hello, everyone. This is Maddie, uh, your host from the Voluntary Vixens podcast, joined as usual by my lovely co host, Jesse. Hello. <laughs> We're uh, quite perky and excited this Friday. We've got quite quite a big guest with us. Um, so I think it's a hell of a way to start the new year, um, hit the ground running. We've got with us Jeffrey Tucker. If you have not heard this name before, um, you know, I, you've got some reading to do. Uh, <laughs> there's plenty of material <laughs> out there. And I think, um, you know, we really, I reached out to Jeffrey last week on Twitter. Thanks for being so open and available and easy for me to reach you. Like I was not expecting a quick response, but um, (laughs) Jesse and I have been reading uh, Liberty or Lockdown, Jeffrey's latest book, and wanted to have him on to talk about that and kind of just like the state of the world. Um, 
as it pertains to this topic that, you know, Jesse and I both being in the scientific and medical community, we're heretics um, for what we believe. <laughs> but it's nice to have somebody like Jeffrey uh, in our corner and speaking out. Well, I don't think you're going to be heretics for long, actually. I think everything is shifting over the last several days. I've noticed a big change in uh, public attitudes, and there's a lot of loosening going on. Governments are starting to repeal restrictions, and we're going to start dealing with this COVID-19 as a medical issue, not a political one, I hope. Actually, I was going to ask you about that because, you know, interesting timing. The inauguration is uh, now through. It went along without any kinks. And, um, you know, the, the WHO is reporting that there's flaws with the PCR testing and various governors from like the Cuomo and um, Lori Lightfoot. Er, she's a mayor, but Lori Lightfoot end of the spectrum to even my Maryland governor Hogan is like, let's open schools. What are we doing? The science doesn't prove that mm -hmm. uh, everything that we've done so far didn't help, was a terrible idea, you know. Um, so I think you're right. Like, I was going to ask you about um, this shifting and turning of the tides. Yeah, it seems to be happening very fast. I'm just looking at st testing statistics. Testing has fallen off a cliff, actually, uh, over the last two weeks. Um, and with the CDC ordering a new change in the cycle threshold for for the the PCR tests, um, you're going to start seeing a big pop in cases, and that's going to be able to justify governments loosening, opening up schools, allowing, you know, who knows? Maybe we'll go to, go to Broadway shows by the end of the year. Who knows? We'll see. It's a big change, big shift. Big shift. Yeah, and you know, it's frustrating for. Us because and, and me, you know, like I really have been working this whole year to stop with calamity, and I like to believe I've had some impact, like my ideas really matter, uh, or that I've had some great branch declaration, you know, I like to believe that made a big difference. I don't know, I, you know, it's it, it, it seems like little considerations that are primary, and I didn't want to believe that the whole year. And I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, I just thought that this was a gigantic mistake, but. Mm -hmm. The timing of everything is very suspicious. And, you know, all year people have said, oh, this is all just a get Trump campaign. I never believed that. I thought it was a genuine public health error. Um, but now I'm starting to wonder how much bad medicine, bad immunology, bad epidemiology is interwoven with a political agenda, too. Early on in this, when, um, you know, Jesse and I have been talking about this for a while, um, and, like all year, annoyingly, it's been quite the topic, right? Um, but, I mean, that's because it's had such a dramatic effect on all of our lives. And, you know, a huge portion of your book called The Carnage, it talks about just how much of our lives were dismantled. And, you know, yeah. we, we might be some of the more fortunate people that didn't lose more like actual essential bits of our life. But, you know, I hate that labeling that they've done this year of the word essential. Like, yeah. you know, um, the, the what you've wrote, what you've written about, like, you know, singing and the arts, like I'm somebody that does come from a singing background. Like that's how I became um, less shy. I was a very shy kid growing up. And so in high school, I was able to actually find some place for myself in in, in chorus and the performing arts. And so like, I literally want to cry thinking about what, um, you know, the high school kids and 
are doing yeah. this year, did last year. Um, mm-hmm. It's just awful. Yeah. Um, yeah, and and it's not it's true with schools. I mean, I, it's it's interesting. I hear stories all the time. Like there was a a uh, performance of the importance of being earnest or something like that at a local high school, and the kids had practiced it for months. And the opening day was like March sixteenth. So oh, they, and they had to cancel the whole thing. It was really quite tragic and sad. Um, I remember on March 12th, I was in New York at a bar and there were like three or four employees that worked on Broadway. Um, one was a singer, one was a lighting specialist or something like that, as I recall. And we were having drinks together this was right before the calamity hit and they were scared. Um, they were, they, they, what it turned out was that the very next day was the last performance of, of what they were doing. And there were several wonderful shows that had just opened up um on broadway that were completely canceled one was uh, the new west side story i don't know if you even knew mm. about it, but it was it was absolutely spectacular just a complete rethinking of uh-huh. of the, the thing and a really very effective i saw it like two weeks prior and it was really starting to take off getting great reviews and it was really exciting revival and then just away. just it was gone just really tragic i know and I think, um, you know, the more I, people like us will never forget the true tragedy, I think, of this mm-hmm. year, because I think we were open to seeing past potential fear of the virus um, right. to kind of seeing uh, and predicting the various ramifications that we have ultimately witnessed. Um, and so um, it's hard to know what the biggest scandal is of this year. I, I think about last year, I, I, I was trying to think about what, what is the worst, where did everybody go wrong? And I think you, you could say you know, the PCR testing and everything, which something about which I've written almost nothing, but, um, but I'm starting to think that really, really matters. But more than anything else, I think the error was in thinking of this new pathogen, uh, SARS, be too, as like some sort of foreign invader, like like this great exogenous thing that suddenly was hitting the world like a meteor. Instead of realizing that we make a deal with pathogens all the time, yeah, uh, yeah, they're they're around us. Uh, our immune systems are scalable; they adapt to them, and it's a deadly dance sometimes. But but it's the dance we do, and we still recognize that we have to have social functioning. Markets have to work. People have to have human rights. We have to have the arts. We have to live our lives. We have to build rich, full lives, even in the presence of infectious diseases. And, yes. and that's a social contract that we made hundreds and hundreds of years ago, coming out of the um, the, the Black Death, the Enlightenment of the 16th, 17th centuries. We the science got better and. Public fear of disease was reduced, and then politicians stopped acquiescing to populist terror. And then gradually, and by the way, the commercial interests at the time always hit quarantines and disruptions in the events of pandemics. But by the late 19th century, the science and the commercial interests and human rights advocates all kind of came together and said, All right, we're going to have normal social function. We're going to treat diseases scientifically and medically, not politically, not brute force and quarantines and closures and, and, and terror. Uh, instead, we're going to approach this 
with calm and intelligence. Um, the last bout of public panic was 1918, as you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Some quarantines and mask mandates and things in San Francisco and Chicago, but New York I'm shut down. And public health learned a lot from that experience. It was really, really bad. Um, we did nothing to mitigate the Spanish flu. And so there was still kind of a lot of disease of phobia in the 1920s, but when the 29 parrots who came along, they didn't shut down. With a bit of polio, epidemic of uh, was it approached medically, not politically, not with public panic or no closures. And then 1957, 58, um, uh, panic, well, that was Asian, I believe. Mm-hmm. That was handled, that was arguably, a, at least on a global scale, much deadly than COVID-19. And yet it was approached very calm, confidence with attention to public health. The instructions were don't go to the hospital unless you're really sick. We want to overcrowd the, overcrowd the hospitals, but otherwise stay calm. That was the New York Times that said that. And, mm-hmm. and, it, and it came and it went. Our systems improved <laughs> and uh, life went on. Then that mutated another 10 years later to 1968-69 with the Hong Kong flu. We give these pathogens names of people that we think are foreign and unfamiliar. (laughs) And um, we still had good stock, still had life went on, and it was was all good. And even in 2009, that was pretty scary. There's H1N1. uh, Same pathogen as 1918, and it came in just out of problem. So uh, it's almost like in 10 years later, 11 years later, we forgot everything we knew about public health and, and pathogens and, and the deal we made, which is to continue to have social opportunity rights, things like that. And then it was just all, it was all wiped out. So we could perform this strange experiment based on agent-based models and uh, fantasies of, of crazy physicists. And we tried a terrible experiment. And I hope that by the end of the year, people can start recognizing what a disaster it really was. They'll admit that they made well, terrible mistakes. We're not anywhere near that point yet, but I hope someday we will be. I agree. And um, mm-hmm. I think you point out well in the book, and um, if you know anybody listening can probably witness it and see it for themselves, that the psychological damage is going to be something that um, might take a bit more time recovering yeah. from like yeah. for example my boyfriend and i went for a walk yesterday afternoon and um you know not terribly cramped sidewalk like a normal nice two-person sidewalk we go to one side if we see somebody coming and especially because this um girl approaching us was young probably younger than me looked in good health she's out walking no mask great i'd love i love seeing your face she literally like went up the steps in a stoop of another house and I was like, oh, she's she must live there. That's interesting. Never saw her there before. But no, she was just getting out of the way so she didn't have to inch past my boyfriend and I so that she could properly social distance. So whether she's either that scared or thinks that we're that holy of advocates of this necess this you know, we think unnecessary social distancing, but like I was like, okay, so I thought we were making some progress here at, you know, the lack of mask and her being outside, um, those were good signs. And then she ran away from us. Yeah. 
and it's like how long it's i was really disturbed but when people treat each other as nothing but pathogenic vectors of disease uh, you can't Mm -hmm. have normal function society you can't have mutual respect and, and love um it's 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 potentially catastrophic for progress um it's just a really bad attitude and it's interesting you point out the demographics uh or the Shijiang seemingly healthy it's very strange i knew about the gradient of risk associated with SARS-CoV-2 as early as um late march i think um and and yet we've gone this whole year with people not understanding that the, 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 the tiny, tiny, tiny risk associated with most people who are healthy and under the age of 70. And, and even healthy people over the age of 70, very small risk for severe outcomes. All the disease modeling that you saw coming out in February and March all assumed a homogeneity of risk. It was like... Yep. It was just yeah. we were all equally. It was like they never accounted for uh, the gradients of risk, and it was just very strange because in every previous pandemic, the very first thing that scientists want to know is who is it, you know, and mm-hmm. and and so they can give good public health advice. So for some reason, that didn't that didn't happen this year. That we just continued to act as if everyone is equally susceptible and everything has to be shut down. You're still here with that. Yes. Well, that's, I think, the most frustrating part. I guess, you know, I'm a nurse. And so everything I learned in school about how your immune system fights off disease was I'm literally watching Dr. Fauci and these experts, quote unquote, tell me something that totally different than what I learned in, in nursing school. Mm-hmm. which I know is not that much different than what a doctor learns in medical school. So, you know, I'm just baffled by what I'm hearing. And then, you know, I'm watching as my coworkers and friends I went to school with and other nurses that I've worked with before in other places fall in line with what is happening. And it's just like, it's like watching Village of the Damned or something. It's like, you know... <laughs> How is it happening with these seemingly intelligent people that know better, completely just buying the lie or parroting the lie somehow? Uh, one of the very first things I did in the early days of the pan- pandemic was downloaded from Amazon Cell Biology for Dummies. And, uh, <laughs> Brilliant. And I, I read it just to make sure that I, I had remembered the <laughs> biology uh, properly. Just as yes. a reality check. Yeah. And, Sure enough, yeah. there wasn't a word in there about how uh, locking everything down solves the, the, yeah. the, the viruses. It was, it's all about herd immunity and and, mm-hmm. and exposure, it, it, which is a funny thing that there's been a taboo about this topic this whole year. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. Very early on, you saw some interviews with doctors where they said, look, you don't need to be afraid of this. Um, actually, exposure is good for you. Um, hiding from a virus is actually very dangerous because it creates a naive immune system and you, you make yourself weaker, potentially even more dangerous pathogens later. And so mm-hmm. people are giving very open, frank interviews about this. And then it all just disappeared. And yes. you know, the, the idea that we should allow people to live their normal lives, to be exposed in order to continue our progress and to scale our immune system up as we've done a millennia, you know, 
tens of hundreds of thousands of years. Um, that was just went away. And, and it was just very strange. And even now, the taboo about this topic, uh, people, everyone that assumes the right way to deal with these is to, is to avoid it completely, which is not It's not. You know what's interesting? Because I, I, I have a lot of friends who are epidemiologists, and they ask me this question all the time. Like, how is it that the public got so confused? And one asked me, do, do I think it was because a whole generation was raised believing that, that shots and medicine are the way that you, you keep diseases out of your body? Um, whereas with I, you know, went to chickenpox party once in second place. You know? mm-hmm. So I learned very early on this counterintuitive thing that you need to get the disease in order to protect yourself against the disease later. Uh, and the, these shared communities, other things. I mean, I learned all this, not just in school, but um, through experience. But then we got a chickenpox vaccine. So that was fun, you know, so people never really. And so now a whole generation of, of germophobes, I think there's a technical name, is mysophobia, something like that. And the pandemic, this pandemic just played into it. And by the way, I still have coworkers that will not act. You know, they, they're hmm. convinced yeah. COVID is in this building. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's strange. It's like, but Trump called it the invisible enemy. Well, that's a problem. Uh, if, if you've got the, 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 the invisible, it's the enemy everywhere. everywhere. And then you start imagining things like, oh, COVID is my, you know, all the COVID is on my car keys, you know. Um, uh, how, how do I how do I know that my my cell phone is filled with COVID? I better, and so, you know, we douse ourselves mm-hmm. with hand sanitizer all the time, or it's it, it's like completely out of control. The the, the mask stuff is just crazy. It's it's uncomfortable. It's unhealthy. It's and gross. Imagine <laughs> that it's gross, and people imagine <laughs> protecting themselves and others. It's just it's not true. It's a talisman, exactly like the Journal of the American Medical Association said in March. You know. Um, very blunt about that, but 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 people have imagined sorts of things that aren't that aren't true. You know, how are we going to unwrap this? You know, I worry about that. I would be interested in your own opinions about this. Um, I, I'd like to now that the atmosphere is calming down. You know, we're going to start seeing cases fall, obviously, and things are going to start mm-hmm. opening up again. But I do think we have a problem: uh, a public that's absolutely psyched itself out to a state of frenzy. And disease fear. What is your opinion about that? Um, I'll, I'll go. go so <laughs> yeah, I'll go first, just because. Like, so um, I mentioned earlier that, and anybody else listening might have um, previous knowledge of what my job is, but I act as sort of a liaison for doctors, researchers, scientists um, that act as expert witnesses and lawyers that need them to help their clients, whether it's the defense or the plaintiff side. And so I work with the experts. I work with these people that we're told to trust. And um, it's been really depressing all year that they've been very team doom. They've been very team apocalypse. And so, you know, if it weren't for me already being very in touch and in tune with, you know, let's say alternative views and um, alternative media and other outlets, uh, places where I get my information that do not come from that TV screen. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And def- definitely not CNN, like they all worship. 
Um, it's been really, really depressing um, listening to nonstop doom and gloom from them all year. And what's like crazy, and, and I, 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 that's why I thank you. Like I thank other people that have been really great on this issue, following it and asking all the really important questions that nobody seems to. And or if they do get asked, they don't get acknowledged by um, this, you know, medical corner of the cathedral. Like they have it. I've never heard of the Great Barrington Declaration from any of them. It, mm. it doesn't it doesn't yeah. exist. I'm pretty sure as far as they're concerned. If like I said, if I wasn't already plugged into the alternative, the alternative um, news sources and podcasts um, and articles, I would have never heard of it. And so, you know, it's not surprising that that is the reality for a lot of people. Um, And so, you know, we all preach to our choir, but it's only our choir that's listening, unfortunately. And I mean, you know, the censorship that's been happening lately is a lot less helpful than um, I wish it would be. But, you know, perhaps as things kind of do relax, you know, we've been noticing people um, are either unfrozen on their social media accounts now they're allowed to talk um that'll help um with further relaxation and spreading the message but and you know and i'm not the kind of person that likes to say i told you so but i also um i'm really hoping that there is some kind of um worthwhile reflection of this year like what did we get wrong um you know we as experts like point to the CDC. What did they get wrong? Why did we listen to them? Um, I'm, I'm telling you, like I paused my work and, you know, I'm, this is a weekday that we're um, talking to Jeffrey here. So I paused my work day. You know, I stopped. What was I doing beforehand? I was working on a report that actually critiques the CDC's unscientific methods and ways that they've, um, you know, put this ramshackle science thing that they call together and has influenced NIOSH regulations for an entire like sector of industry. But it's like, you know, so here we are pointing out that they are fallible. They're not perfect. They've clearly done something to some degree along an agenda. Right. And then, but literally can turn the switch on and off. And then we go to, well, the CDC recommends today that um, we don't touch each other. And it's like, Oh, oh, this is so, uh, you know, I'm optimistic that um, we can keep sp- like the, the message might be more well received now than ever. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I that's kind of. So, so. Uh, the CDC has been a disaster this whole year. Like, even if you look at the website right now and want to find out the risk, what is the, what is your risk of, of, of severe outcomes from COVID? You're going to find things that are just make no sense. No. Yeah. Uh, their their charts are strange, and they're assembling the data in odd ways, and in in a way that nobody could even understand. Like, you, I have to download the actual data to make sense of it. Yeah. Um. And when the, also one of the huge mistakes that I made this year, um, I think about this because I've been writing about this now one whole year. My first article was January twenty seventh uh, on COVID. Um. The biggest mistake I made was was thinking that you could trust the data. Um, and as time has gone on, I, I began to suspect case data, and then I began to suspect the death data because mm-hmm. of the misclassification problem and the incentives yeah. that, 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 that um, 
they were baked into the system for attributing everything to COVID. And then I began to distrust the hospitalization data because yep, yeah. of, of, I mean, I think hospitals are tending to, you know, have tended to drag people in and make them stay uh, when they probably didn't need to be. Or in the case of my mother, she's 81 years old and she got a, a very bad stomach infection. It's like she was actually in danger. She tested negative for COVID. They threw her out. It's like, nope, we don't want you. I was like, wait, you threw my mom out? I mean, my mother is really sick. They would not mm -hmm. hospitalize her because she didn't have COVID. So it's like, it's wow. crazy. So, so I started to doubt case data, death data, hospitalization data, just, just everything. And, you know, early on, like in the spring and summer, I really began to think, you know, looking at those pretty curves online, you know, that you could, mm -hmm. you could tell something. But, but by the fall, winter, I'm now just thinking, I don't, this is just loser. One good example is, is uh, the testing, uh, is the, the way the case data is so contingent upon, uh, upon testing. I mean, I was looking at Taiwan this morning, which had almost no cases and almost deaths for a variety of reasons. Maybe it's a shared community with uh, SARS CoV 1 from 2012, 2002. But anyway, I was looking at their testing. It's a flat line. They tested almost no, nobody. And it's, it's a great way, great way to not have the pandemic. You just don't have any tests. And that's what Taiwan did. And then the U.S. starts wild to testing more per thousand than any country in the world. And then about two weeks ago, it just fell off the cliff. You know, so be a combination mm -hmm. change in the cycle threshold plus a, a massive amount of testing. You, you can create the illusion of, of the pathogen having almost entirely disappeared. I mean, when you have that kind, that's just bad data, which reminds me of what John uh, Ioannidis said from Stanford back in, in March. He said, we're making very severe decisions based on really bad data. We're going to create a calamity, a historical calamity, uh, based on, on, on science that we do not understand. Based on data that is not trustworthy. And that's what he predicted back in March. Was he right? Sadly, yes. And the the guy who actually made the PCR test, he never really liked Dr. Fauci to begin with, <laughs> because of how he wanted to use the test for AIDS. But um, and unfortunately, didn't he die like in 2019? Mm -hmm. August 2019. Yeah. So that would have been sad. I mean, it would have been great to have him around to speak out again. But it was never, his test was never there for studying or to detect infectious disease. It was there just for to study the protein. You could amplify it enough so that you could study it. That was the whole point of it. So we've been using this model, you know, as a way to detect infectious disease. And we've probably had so many people scared out of their mind that they have COVID when they probably weren't, weren't really sick with it. They just probably had they, their body probably already fought it off and contained it and they were fine, yeah. but they have to quarantine and they, and they are afraid that they're going to get their grandma sick and die. And it's just a lot of unnecessary, a lot of unnecessary worry that we've caused the entire population. And it's created such a thing where it's like if you try to explain away that to them to give them some hope, it's like they can't accept the 
they can't accept that hope. <laughs> yeah, they can't accept the reality. They they don't trust the data. They and that the data is too abstract. All these mm-hmm. things mm-hmm. we're talking about are too abstract. If you're just afraid of disease, then it, nothing we're saying is going to get through to you. Um, one of the most startling articles I read in uh, over the course of the, the year was in the New York Times. I think it was October nineteenth, where they did a study of all the tests in Massachusetts. Not all two weeks of testing in Massachusetts. And the cycle thresholds were running 45. Uh, oh, God. Really high. Really high. And For anybody listening who doesn't know, that's really, crazy. really high. And what they concluded from the study was that 90% of the positive COVID cases were false positives. Yes. 90% in Massachusetts in those two weeks. I read that and I thought, my God, you know, it's, it's, it's like astonishing. It's like terrible. Bad science. So Terrible. We, even at this stage, we don't actually know. We know less now than we uh, than we did last year at this time about the actual mm-hmm. t- t- demographics and the spread. And, and forget trying to calculate an R not from this bad data. This is a, forget it. And there yeah. are websites right now that are tracking the R not in real time. That's the rate of <laughs> yep. infection. You know, yep. is it yeah. above one? Is it below one? There is no way. Is it green or is it red? Yeah. There's no way in hell you can know any of that. That is just that is pure gibberish stuff. It's online right now. We're looking at is it red zone or the green zone? Is it infections up, infections down? Nobody knows. Well, I think I will. I was going to say they'll fight it. They'll fight to pretend that they know. Yeah. And I really just think that I don't think that it's really that hard to understand the immune system as much as we are taught that it is it's kind of like math and science we're always taught it's very difficult only certain people can understand it so if they're wearing a lab coat you better listen but the truth is it's not that hard to understand the immune system i think that's the failing of our public school system that there's so many people that they don't even want to think for themselves or do the just do the the minimum amount of research that you can do on what an immune system is, how how a virus infects the cell, all these things, so that they just they turn their brain off. I think I don't think it's that they're not smart enough to get it. I just think that some of these people they just have been told or they have told themselves for so long, I'm not going to get this. That when you start talking about how vi- your body's filled with millions of viruses and millions of bacteria, anyways, and that you already are just a carrier of all kinds of different things that that's what your body's supposed to do. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to. And the, and that's the symbiotic relationship with our environment is that the more we're exposed to more viruses, the stronger our immune system is. And then that also makes the virus itself weaker because mm-hmm. it doesn't do the virus any good to kill its host. Right. So the more that it's exposed to every single living thing out there, the weaker that it gets. So the more you hide, the Mm -hmm. stronger, Mm -hmm. in a sense, you're making the virus to you. That's right. So thank you for bringing that up. You know, this basic point that there's a trade-off between (laughs) the severity of a pathogen and and its prevalence is a basic principle of of immunology or, or epidemiology was completely lost on people this year. And you can see it lately with the, with the new strain, with the new mutation, when mm-hmm. viruses mutate, that's what they do. But <laughs> at, 
And you heard all over the news that oh, it's even more contagious. Well, in a way, yeah. that's actually good, right? That's yeah. like that's actually good news because it means it's going to be less severe. And and that yes. and that that reporters didn't mention that. It's just crazy. Um, well, most. I'll tell you a story about my own childhood when you're ready to, when you're ready to hear it. I'll tell you. <laughs> well, I was just going to say most Americans get their are getting their scientific information from journalists right now, mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. a little scary. scary. It sure is. It sure is. Um, you know, my my mother was very well educated in in viruses, as was her mother before her, and so they learned how to treat viruses rationally, trusting in systems. But also, her generation had too great a confidence in antibiotics. Antibiotics are wonderful; they're great, but they can also be overused. My mother's mm-hmm. generation uh, overused them. They thought that they had a problem with viruses; you have to get them. Um, but <laughs> bacterial infections can be just crushed all the time with just popping pills and taking shots. So when I was very young, my mother always treated all my infections with antibiotics, and I developed an actual immune deficiency as a result of it, and gamma globulin. So I went to the doctor, they tested my blood, said, wow, this guy has a terrible uh, genetic disorder that he lacks gamma globulin. And so then they had to pump me full of gamma globulin. This is all just ridiculous. It was caused by the antibiotics itself. You know, in retrospect, that's really obvious to me. But I developed a habit of taking antibiotics over the years. So as I got to be a, a late teen and I had access to doctors all the time. I was became a, like pill poppers, like erythromycin, mm. penicillin, give me your your, your Z-packs. And, you know, every time I felt anything, it was like, well, sure enough, the immune system began breaking down again. And then mm-hmm. I found myself in Washington, D.C., living in an efficiency apartment. I didn't have a doctor, didn't have any money either. Um, and I got really sick. I got a terrible strep throat with high fever, and I had no choice but just to let it, let it go and, and survive it. I remember sleeping on a futon and you know, going through three or four days, or even longer, five days, sweating out, you know, high fever at night, feeling terrible, not eating, throwing up, all the terrible things you associate with. with it. And it, I, I couldn't remember the last time I had been sick, because I had never let myself get sick. I was always mm-hmm. taking these pills all the time. Well, do you know that after that four or five days of misery, I went through another 10 solid years of health and I stopped taking antibiotics completely and I never took them again. Um, I mean, I would if, if, it gets bad, if something gets bad enough. But, but your body does respond really, really well if you let yes. it do the work. And yes. that's, that's just a point of wisdom that just seems to be completely lost on this generation. Especially, have you noticed this? I I think the under thirty demographic is is more terrified of 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 getting COVID nineteen than any other. I mean, they are just the (laughs) crazy, and they're the least at risk. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what I've observed. So, like, I am thirty, and I'll say that I think, like, actually, kids, kids, um, people a little bit younger than me are kind of just not caring as much like their parents might and if their parents have done quote a good job instilling fear in them from this scary insidious invisible monster if they've done a good job scaring the bejesus out of their kids they're 
quite frightened. But what I will say is like my specific like generation and bracket right now, I've got like very few of my friends and peers are non-perplussed. Like everybody else though, you're like, is very afraid. And I'm like, you're not at risk. And, or if you think you are at risk, what are you doing lately to help your immune system? Mm -hmm. But like, again, you know, like I said, what also has been depressing and something that I've picked up on over this past year of listening to the quote unquote experts, it's like, there's not a mention of what you can do to your immune system to make you better equipped to ward off this virus. Yeah. And, um, and I, and something you said earlier made me want to ask you what your thoughts on this were like, so, and it's kind of like where my mind's been brought, but, um, so Basically, especially in the early days, but it's still residually here that everybody's got this equal risk. You know, everybody it's if it's a very homogenized risk that everybody is going to get it and everybody is going to die. It's absolute ultimate doom for everybody. It does not matter your demographic. So is that, in your opinion, maybe like the nature of um, like the collectivist nature of those who kind of are, you know, from the top? either instructing us in schools or making these government mandates. Like it is like all a collectivist nature and um, what they're doing versus, you know, people like us um, and you especially have been working for decades um, celebrating the individual. And um, yeah. yeah, yeah, well, that's right. And, and, and viruses and pathogens and public health really do come down to the individual. Uh, mm-hmm. That's the most important point. It's like only individuals get sick. You know, people don't Very get true. sick as a collective. Um, so I think that the irresponsible public health messaging, I, the media is a lot to blame for this, but I would just uh, blame Fauci and, and Burks and, and CDC and World Health mm-hmm. Organization. It's yeah. absolutely dreadful on this. And I, I, I hope that over the coming months, we're going to get a greater you know, truth help. From from uh, the White House, from somebody, governor's office about about the gradient of risk associated with severe This and by the way, you know, COVID was interesting. It's funny to speak about it the past tense now, but mm. it was really different from like um, the the Hong Kong flu and the Asian flu, especially in 40 percent of the deaths from the Asian flu of 1957-58 were under the age. of of uh, 60. Incredible. Yeah. And whereas I think the data is much closer to like, I forget what it is right now. Well, it depends on the area, but there's some areas in the country where, um, so it's something like only 8% are, are under the age of, of 65. And, and uh, you know, nearly 100% of those are associated with comorbidities, right? So, mm-hmm. so um, SARS 2 is much less severe for the full range of the population. And it's really a focused disease, one that affects primarily people over 70 and, mm-hmm. um, and with comorbidities. Where's the CDC? You can find that information on the CDC site, but it's, it's hard to look pretty, pretty hard. You have to yeah. actively search for it and know what you're searching for. And then even yep. once you might find it, still have to kind of think about what to do with it. Yeah, this um, COVID could have been much worse. And for all we know, the next pathogen will be much worse. Yeah. 
Exactly. And will we be prepared for it? You know, will our immune systems be ready for it? Or have we been sanitizing our world so much and avoided disease? You know, how how much more naive are our immune systems now than they were last year? That's a really difficult question to answer. And it's potentially catastrophic. Yeah, it's a frightening reality, I think, you know. Um, We haven't been mixing with each other's um with each other's like little microbiomes we haven't um probably gotten enough exercise um alcohol intake's yep. been up um i'm doing a dry january <laughs> it's doing the best i can here um because you know alcohol is a de- is a depressant that so that mentally messes with you but also actually does decrease your immune uh your immune system's re- ability to respond to pathogens um yeah alcohol sales are up Fifty percent. Alcohol is essential. <laughs> they stayed open. Yeah, that's yeah. what I don't. Yeah, that's what I don't. That understand. was that was poetic. I mean, it. it some of this, um, and uh, this goes towards like a whole theme we probably all experienced this year. Um, it was interesting to see who was in the local government or state government's um, favor and was able to stay open. So like I just said, like all alcohol and liquor stores, they were able to stay open because generally the state gets a nice chunk of sales tax for those. So got to keep those open. But bars, um, restaurants, closed, churches, closed, definitely churches. You know, the state's not getting any tax from them. So... (laughs) Yeah, pot shops in Massachusetts. All the pot shops stayed open. Oh, yeah. It's here in Maryland. Yeah, you got to get that. Yeah. Yep. yeah. <laughs> that really drove my boyfriend crazy. He's very uh like straight straight laced and um so he's like the pot shop's open. Like we can't go inside for a burger, but the pot shop's uh, pot shop's open. You can't go to church on Easter. <laughs> the yeah. cancellation of holidays was an amazing thing. It's like so first rude. gone and then uh I don't know what was the, the next one, but it was yeah, well, uh, there's Halloween was over gone and Thanksgiving was abolished and then Christmas. Yeah. Oh, right. yeah. Just beyond belief. Beyond belief. What a hellish year. You know, it, and it's been psychologically difficult for all of us to adjust. We should talk about that, actually, because like, I'm a very happy person. I've been happy since I was a little boy. I've been happy my whole life. And March 12th was the, the, I felt the lights go out. And yeah. began with Trump's speech, ending flights from, from Europe. I think, can you do that? Can you really just block all flights from Europe? It, just, it, it struck me as like a totalitarian action. And I just mm-hmm. woke up the next morning hoping that I had a nightmare. <laughs> and then I realized mm-hmm. it was real. And, I, and, and by two weeks later, for the first time in my life, I dreaded the morning. Like yeah. I preferred to be asleep than to be yes. awake. I've never in my whole life experienced anything. Like that. I've my whole life loved waking up in the morning, getting so excited, seeing the sun, seeing what the day has to offer, what kind of adventure there for me. It's, it's been my whole life. That changed in 2020, and it changed me. And I began to worry. I probably. Our listeners can relate. You probably can too. I began to worry what I was doing to myself. You know, like 
am I tilting towards depression? Is that possible? What would happen to me physiologically and psychologically yeah. if I actually entered into that realm? How can I prevent it? How to keep myself going? Find paths to happiness. And, and then there was one moment, sometime, I think it might have been in the fall, where I, I felt like I didn't even want to be happy. You know, that is a strange thing. It's like, even if you know something will temporarily make you happy, you don't want to do it because you know short term it's not going to last. So you're just yeah. like, mm-hmm. I'm just going to embrace sadness. That's, that's got to be dangerous. It's, it's got, you know, for us as individuals, yeah. terrible. Um, I feel like I've been serving as a counselor this year to so many people. It's like my, it's like my phone has been like the suicide hotline. I mean, people don't call you and say, yeah. They don't call you and say, well, I'm about to kill myself. What they call, they call and say, I'm kind of in a dark place. Can mm-hmm. I talk to you? Yep. I've, I've done six or eight long sessions with, with friends over this year. Wow. Well, yeah. you mentioned in your book, too, how there's so little empathy from a certain side, the side that really thinks that we need to lock down, that needs to wear the mask and all that stuff. It's like nobody else's problems matter at all. The only thing that matters is that we stop COVID. So if you're if you lost your job or you're feeling suicidal because you're back into using drugs again and you can't quit, um, whatever it might be, um, there's just no sympathy for that, no empathy at all. Yeah. And and then, you know, I, I know there I'm not the only one. There's so several people have reached out to me to me, I know, that have had family members in the hospital that were sick from something completely different or dying from something completely different. They can't go and be with their loved ones. Uh-huh. And I, I've heard of situations where um the a mother in law who had dementia was left in the hospital without her family to help her get grounded and the doctors like doing all these treatments on her and you know that you you can call the family and all that stuff but it's just not the same as being there and seeing what's actually going on so there's a lot of that psychological problem too is not just being able to advocate for your loved ones um my i know i lost my mother-in-law um just like a a month after we locked down Mm. she she was one of those very, very much like we need to lock down. We need to stay out of the hospitals. So when she had problems breathing from her, um, she had she was in congestive heart failure, but we didn't know that hmm. she was having problems breathing. And we were trying to get her to go to the hospital. But she's like, I know I don't have covid, so I'm just going to wait it out. Cause it's only going to be a few more weeks. I'll be I'll be fine. Right. And then. Next thing you know, she's unconscious. She's in the hospital. They had to put her on a ventilator and she passed away within a week. So it was one of those things where we couldn't be there. And, you know, it's just we had no I mean, she lived out of state. So we really didn't know how bad she was until she got there. We had to rely heavily on the nurses giving us all the information. And that, they tried their best, but it's just not the same. No. You know? Were you able to have a funeral? No. Um, my husband um, basically went down and took care of everything. He just was kind of the only one there. So, I mean, at least he got to be by her gravesite. But still, it was just like, 
it just wasn't the same. Amazing. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I have a, a, just to go back slightly about the point of lack of empathy. I feel like I've learned so much about the political class this year. I never mm-hmm. realized just how cruel they really could be. But completely yeah. disregarding uh, of people's lives, of the poor, of the working mm-hmm. class, of, of you know, just basic life necessities and, and disregarding yep. people's rights and freedoms. It's like, I, I had no idea. I, like, I've, I've never been a fan of government, mm-hmm. but, mm-hmm. but I had no idea the depth of evil uh, that they could engage in and with no regard for the poor, yep. for anything. I, I'll never believe a word that these people say again and that they, that they were mm-hmm. willing to do what they've done this year. You know, dentistry over the spring and summer collapsed by 70%. Yeah. I had a, a, a brief fear myself that I had a, um, I, I worried I needed a root canal. Mm. This was sometime in May. And <laughs> so I tried to call up all the dentists around here. They were all closed. Like nobody yeah. would see it. Yep. Uh, and they said we're only open for emergencies. I'm like, well, needing a root canal is that's name of, in the emergency. Yeah. And so, yeah. and I, I didn't wasn't sure I needed. It. I just said, you know, I probably just had a tortilla stuck in there or something. Retrospect, but <laughs> I didn't. I didn't know. So I called up my mother. I said, Mom, hey, you've got a friend of dentist in Texas. How about I just come down there? She goes, okay, that's fine. Then we get you an appointment. So she called the dentist up, and they said, well. He has to be here two weeks to quarantine. We can't see him until he's been here oh, two God. weeks to quarantine. Mm. So I, I said, well, Mom, that's not possible. <laughs> How about if I come, if you make the appointment for two weeks from now, you pretend as if I arrive today. <laughs> and then when I show up, you say, I've been there for two weeks. And she, she's a nice woman. She said, Oh, I love you. I, I don't feel really good about lying. And I said, all right, better no. forget him. <laughs> Never mind. So, fortunately, I didn't need to come out. I didn't need to, I didn't need to be a dentist. But it's a weird feeling suddenly realized that I don't have access to dentistry. Something I mean, yeah. so first world and taken for granted, really. Well, it was funny because the New York Times on... February the 27th published an article called to deal with the coronavirus let's go full medieval mm-hmm. well we did we got rid of this <laughs> yeah. we went full medieval locked people down spread disease panic we got so medieval that uh, the mayor of New York City uh, blamed the Hasidic Jews for the spread of COVID yeah. oh yeah yeah that was, that was ridiculous that, that so was ridiculous! Amazing. I wish I wish he received more backlash for that. Yeah. I mean, you know, Trump is Hitler, but here's, you know, New York going anti-Jew in full force. It so was that was. And, and speaking of the Hasidim, you know that they've they've been completely normal ever since uh, late March. They said we're not going to do this, and so they've the, had mass weddings and funerals and engagement. It's a lot. This is a big community. They tend to not, they distrust little vaccines. 
they love just living a normal community life. Severe outcomes for for SARS-CoV-2 among the Hasidim is like like almost zero. Mm-hmm. And I've asked some people about this, like how do how do you explain uh, the absence of of death within the Hasidic community from COVID-19? And somebody said, "Oh, it's a young demographic." It's dismissive. Yeah, I, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I don't think so. But you know, well, and I and I think the media has spin that a little bit wrong. They they made it sound like I know about a month ago, my husband is um, he was he's totally on the lockdown, mask wearing side. Like, so our house is divided. But um, <laughs> he he asked me about um the the Hasidic Jews because he's not a very religious person and he didn't understand like why they were doing that and he had been watching I guess CNN or something and they just had a surge. Of new cases or sickness in the, in that community, and you know, I had explained to them like, you know, there are people that their life, they their eyes are on heaven, and they're thinking about much bigger issues than what is going on right now, and that's why these people can't fathom it because many of them don't even believe in anything. Yeah. So um, that's something that like I'm a Christian, my husband is an atheist, so it's kind of like we're so so divided on so many things it's kind of amazing that we've got together but um you know it's one of those things where i have i'm having to explain to him from a christian perspective like why a jew would choose to <laughs> go to go to you know go to what is it um uh, go to their services and, and and yeah and do all of their traditional things that they've always done for all their generations and why that's important to them because like my husband who grew up without really any religion at all, which I'm thinking like a lot of these people that are in media and all that stuff, they don't have, they don't understand any of that. So that's why they're very critical of it. I think. Um, I, but, I, I wonder, I wonder what these lockdowns, uh, what effect this is going to have on religious communities in the U S whether they ever trust the politicians again, you know, uh, I mean, the know. politicians shut down their houses of worship for a good part of a year and said that singing is dangerous. Yeah. Spreading yeah. disease, you know. That Only that, one person per household can sing, right? Yeah. Like I've, I've heard as arbitrary a uh, rule as that. So like, if God forbid you were allowed to sing in church, only one person from the household group was allowed to do the singing. Is that true? Where was that? I can't remember where I heard that was from, but <laughs> I, it was like added to the list of, I can't believe we're in clown world and this is what they're telling us to do. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, I have a friend of mine who's a choral conductor at the Brompton Oratory in the UK. And he, he directs a voice choir among many others. They were completely shut down. Mm, yeah. Winning. Uh, honest. And these, these kids, these boys, their voices change. Yeah, and and you have to have a continual scheme throughout the whole period if they're going to graduate from being a soprano to be becoming a bass or a baritone. You know, in the course of nine months, which happened, they Mm -hmm. they were just just wrecking this whole voice choir. Yeah, yeah, which is a choir that has been continually running since the fifteenth century. That's so yes, and that's is that like you said, it's like this political class, and then I would even say like the cathedral, the media class, they just 
I don't think that they have an understanding of the importance of certain things, like especially when it comes to church and choir and all of that stuff, because I think those two things kind of go together, really. But um, I guess what I'm just trying to say is that's why they're so quick to shut these things down, because they don't understand how important those things are to the people that practice these things. Sure. And maybe they don't care. I don't know. But, well, in the uh, in the know. Middle Ages and all the way through the 19th century, it was really very common for the ruling class to force the burden of herd immunity on the poor, on uh, minority communities, on on people who don't don't have your religion, on foreigners, and uh, in the in the slave dominated South of the 19th century, it was always the slaves that were forced to be the sandbags for the new pathogen. Right? You go out and get these in and the caste men in India, they have a class of people that are assigned the job mm-hmm. of taking on disease, the unclean, right? Mm-hmm. While the class decides out the mansions and waits for for others to 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 take care of the problems so the pathogen dies out, they don't get touched. But this is actually very bad medicine because it means that the class has like more naive immune systems than everybody else. Um, mm-hmm. But but with modernity, we we made a deal other that we would all share equally in the burden mm-hmm. of, of the pathogen. That we, 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 would, we would recognize human rights and equality and stop assigning uh, the, the, the job, the, the uh, stigma of disease to the poor and um, mm-hmm. to, to, to other people who are the powerless. We made that deal. In 2020, we broke. So the ruling mm-hmm. class just died out. It's like, stay home, stay safe. Well, about thirty percent of America can do that, but there's there's two thirds people can't do that. And yeah. mm-hmm. and uh, the most selfish, I would say, even evil thing, especially to reward yourself. Congratulate yourself for virtues. I'm <laughs> yes. home, staying safe because I care for others. No, there's somebody delivering your food. There's somebody delivering your Amazon packages. If somebody has to put their groceries for the grocery stores. You know, there are people who are working in the hospitals. So there's lots of people out there that, that don't have the luxury. Uh, and you mm-hmm. want to call yourself moral? You know, you're promoting yeah. feudal. That's what you It's totally oh. rotten. And I, and I have seen in the medical field, I have seen the virtue signaling get very just to the point where I, I, like half of the country probably hates nurses now because they get on Facebook <laughs> or Twitter with TikTok. their masks on. And they're saying, like, I know there's this one where it was a doctor, an, an ER doctor saying that I've had, I had a patient today who said that she went to her Thanksgiving and that's where she got sick and, you know, saying like, we are tired. And it was just like, are you seriously demonizing your patient for her spending Thanksgiving with her family? Are you kidding me? Yep. I mean, exactly. Like my grandmother is 95 and she almost didn't go to Thanksgiving this year. And we were like, without trying to, you know, be rude, but be like, this may be the last Thanksgiving and we'd like to see you, yeah, you right. know, we love you. We'd like to see you. Right. And, you know, we're not sick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're so, not sick. We're not yeah. sick. Like, this is, this is, the, I, to anybody who's listening or to, to how to respond to people when they try to shame you or try to live a normal life. Just say, I'm not sick. It's mm-hmm. very simple. I'm not sick. I'm we, not we, sick. 
And even, yes, it's very simple. Um, and even during 2020, we changed the definition of sick too. You notice that? So people, yes. go, oh, <clears throat> well, he's got SARS-CoV-2 asymptomatically. What? <laughs> So he's a leper. Sick. Translates to a leper. <laughs> he's a leper. Asymptomatically sick. I mean, come on. You know, uh, and the demonization of these so-called super spreading events has been going on for the whole year. Um, it all began in spring break, right? And so oh, we yeah. had times of, fuck, these evil students at the beach. And yeah, look at those brats. So irresponsible. Well, you would look it up. There wasn't no severe outcomes from that. There was no death. Nope. Um, and May... There was a conference here in New Hampshire called Porkfest, which they went ahead and put it on anyway, which is just wonderful. And for a lot of people, drove from all over the country because they were been locked down for two months or to get, get, get depressed and just wanted to do something. So there were 450 people that came to that event. And we all hung out for better part of four days. No distancing, no masks. It was going to dance parties and everything. I, I loved it. It was just great. And took a bunch of students with me and everything. Um, and a, an online survey of all the people who went afterwards asked a simple question. Did you get sick? <laughs> not one. Not one. Now, did we spread the pathogen among us? I, I don't know. I mean, there's no way to know. Yeah. But again, to go back to this question of exposure, that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, yeah. Um, this idea of stopping this or slowing spread is weird enough, but stopping the virus by staying away from people—that is not public health. That's crazy mm -hmm. stuff. It's That's bad science, and and bad economics is bad. Everything. It was really a grim. And do you remember it started off with like flattening the curve, and then it was like slow the spread, and then mm -hmm. it came stop the virus. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just over the course of like two months or something like that, it just became really insane. I look back at these days with a sense of horror and humiliation that what we've done to ourselves. Uh, the slogans, the masks, the hopping around like grasshoppers, screaming at each other, shaming people, just the, the, the unhumanitarian. Yes. It, it's just grotesque. The shutdowns, the destruction of the arts. Um, you know, the missed cancer screenings, the depression, the alcoholism, the opioid crisis, all these grim costs. And we don't know what we're doing abroad. I mean, there's some statistics that says there could be hundreds of thousands of children that are alive by the disruption of supply chains. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, this, the year of 2020 should go down in history as one of the greatest disgraces ever. It should. Age. Yes. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, like, your book talked about the rise in domestic violence as well. Um, I just remember I made a video on Instagram about how we need to start, you know, looking out for our neighbors because we don't know. But somebody might be now that we're locked down, there's somebody that's trapped in a domestic violence situation and they they don't have an escape like where their work or their their spouses or partners work might have been an escape. Now it's going to be even worse. And somebody reached out to us, actually, and we had her on the show. And then we kind of opened up like a we we opened up a charity to kind of help get her some money so she can move out on her own. And I was just one of the things where it's just like, you know, 
that's one of the things that I, I've gotten so frustrated. Like we've forgotten about all these people that as a healthcare worker, I get demonized because I don't take COVID seriously, but I feel like, well, you guys have got it covered over there. I'm going to care about <laughs> everybody else now, you know? So yeah. And as long as we're talking about costs, you know, the child abuse problem is, is yes. I mean, people forget how important schools are for protecting children from abusive mm-hmm. domestic situations. Really? Maybe it's not a problem. Yes. In your schools, but it's a problem in a lot of a lot of a lot of homes and a lot of communities in that place. And these these children, I mean, a lot of parents were, were forced to you know, do, do the work at home with the children running around their feet. They don't they live in four bedroom houses. They're living in tiny little space and and ripe for abuse. Oh my yeah. god! We're gonna find out all these things this year. It's um, I know it's, it's so the year sad. goes on. The cancer. Uh, just the missed screenings or everything, missed vaccination. How about that? You know, let's talk about polio coming back. Well, and you know what? Since you're talking about vaccinations, I'm curious to know what you think about this new mRNA vaccine that they're really pressuring people to get right now. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm personally not a fan, so I'd I'd rather acquire (laughs) natural immunities because another point that's Epidemiology 101, natural immunity is safe and more effective for these kinds of viruses than any vaccine ever could could be. And and also long-lasting, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Even our proverb, the New York Times had to admit in an article two weeks ago. Um, I'm not even sure about, I I have a friend who's an epidemiologist and a vaccine specialist. I said, is it right to call this new new form of vaccine an actual vaccine? Is well, not really. Yeah, it's, right. It's not, mm-hmm. it's, it doesn't work like a regular vaccine. It's not like a fashion inoculation. It's it's a gene altering uh, mm-hmm. shot. Um, I'm waiting to see. I hope there's no wide severe reactions to it. But the problem with the vaccine from the very beginning is that a lot of the people who need it would not respond to it because they have broken immune system. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of people who have access and would get it actually don't need it. So if you think about it as a Venn diagram, those people who won't help and those people who don't need it, there's there's an overlap somewhere in the middle, you know, but you don't exactly know where that is. Um, as long as it's not mandatory. Now, a lot of my friends um, in this community were thrilled with the vaccine, not because they thought it was going to be Good therapeutics, but because they thought it would calm everything down and give them excuse yeah. for money up. And then that's that's a strange thing about a vaccine. Right? <laughs> but that's how I'm seeing things too. I think like it's calming a lot of the hysteria down. Yeah. But I think that's also because people either are allowed to be hopeful now. It was like we weren't allowed. There wasn't any room. Everybody was allergic to good news all year. Yeah. Um, yeah. But so this is good news that's been deemed acceptable. So I think it's helping calm some of the hysteria. Um, but like you said, as long as it's not mandatory, I mean, I wish everybody luck. Um, but I, I think I've been I've been working on myself all year, you know, really? I, I think I'll be good. So, you know, like Jesse said, you've got that covered. You've got it covered. You're like you. I'm going to do things yeah. my way. 
And I'm I'm hopeful that I can keep it my choice. Um, I've read that I, I'm in some hospitals, like forty percent of the staff refuse to take the vaccine. Yes, actually. Yeah. So yesterday, yesterday, one of my uh, phone calls that I'm privy to in my job, I learned that City of Hope, um, which I guess is some kind of um, facility in California, forty uh, percent of the frontline like medical uh, workers that would be obviously eligible to take the vaccine, 40% of them have declined. And all the lawyers on the phone are like, why would anybody do that? And I'm just sitting there thinking, <sighs> oh my God, <laughs> Lord help us all. It, it, it is amazing to me because, I mean, one of the things I learned just in, just when I took pharmacology is how long it takes just for a medication to get on the market. And then for a vaccine, mm -hmm. it takes longer just because you have to study it. Now, if you do a deep dive into the history of vaccines, which I, if you don't want to be depressed, I don't recommend. Mm -hmm. But uh, this vaccine has not been studied that long. And I think, well, I don't think either one of them have had a true blind, um, like a blind uh, study. So like that means that they didn't really test the the vaccine against like a saline or a placebo they mm. tested it against a meningitis vaccination yeah so was doesn't really tell you much so like you know if they both have reactions and you're not really sure what's which is which so um i just am not convinced with what i've seen that yeah. it's something that i should put myself at risk for yeah. i have two small children I would like to not put myself at risk so that they have a healthy mother. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I know with my job, I've gotten like two emails saying that they're, you know, rolling this out for us if we want it. It's not mandatory, but we strongly suggest you get this vaccine. Mm. You are, you are a nurse and do you are your be part. taking care of patients. So you have to do your part. Yeah. It's like, you know, very strongly worded. And I'm just like, ignore. Because I'm not going to be, I will quit if they try to make me do it. Mm. You know, I can take care of people. I don't have to be a nurse to take care of people. I can volunteer. I can do whatever. I don't, but I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be bullied into taking that thing until like, you know, you were saying, Jeffrey, if I see at 10 years from now and I'm giving it 10 years for real if nothing really happens and we don't see like an upsurge in infertility, cancer, um, allergies, autism. I mean, if we see, if all those things don't surge up, you know, I might consider it, but as far as, you know, from what I've seen just from the vaccinations that we do now, we have all these problems and there's, there does seem to be, it doesn't necessarily have to mean that it's caused by vaccinations, but it's hard to rule it out with all the other things that we have in our environment too. I mean, we have sure. a lot of toxins in our environment that we ignore as well. Sure. So but here's the, the other strange thing about it is that we know for a fact now from good science that natural immunity to, to SARS-CoV-2 yes. is very powerful and long lasting. There was a, a test that, that followed early exposure, exposure from January all the way to October and just discovered that they had you know, sustained mm -hmm. immunities the entire time that are uh, cross immunities too with other forms of coronavirus. Yes. And so we 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 know this. Uh, so so why are we trusting the science in this case? You know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
It's very cherry picked the, science that we're supposed to be trusting. It's just like what you're saying, though. When you actually get sick from the disease, you have such a longer lasting immunity to it. Mm-hmm. Which is like, for, like, remember when the measles, when we had the measles outbreak again? Mm-hmm. And the people, all the adults that got sick, it, I think from what I remember, is they all ha- had previously had the measles vaccine anyways. Mm. So, I mean, if you had the measles vaccine when you're a kid and now you're in your 40s, guess what? <laughs> you don't have immunity to measles anymore. So if there is another outbreak, you're going to get it. And it's okay because nobody died, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, so you'll be, you'll probably get through it just fine as long as you're healthy, which is the key is just make yourself healthy as much as you can. Mm-hmm. Get outside, get some vitamin D, exercise, eat right, you know, mm-hmm. so a few extra pounds, you know, try not yeah. to drink too much and, and uh, <laughs> live a good life. That's your best yeah. path to. Yep to help yep um so none of us have infinite time but especially you is there sort of anything you want to plug or say that we didn't cover um that anybody uh, listening should no find? i think um i, I would say that I, I i think my book is good and and it's wonderful <laughs> but, but there it's a good time also to download cell biology for dummies you know it's like people Mm -hmm. need to get educated like right away another wonderful book is donald henderson's history of the eradication of polio or or, or smallpox Smallpox. um that's a wonderful book Mm -hmm. Uh, there are several histories of public health out there that i'm reading right now that i like porter's history is wonderful Uh, everybody needs to we can't trust the experts anymore you know they failed yeah so Mm -hmm. it's time for us all to upgrade our knowledge uh, yeah. About about pathogens, about what kind of world we want to live in, whether we want to have human rights and freedom, rebuild our affection for for human volition and equality. We can never let twenty twenty happen again, and it's going to be up to us to make sure it doesn't. Mm-hmm. No pressure. <laughs> as, as as I've got like Atlas over my shoulder right now, like. <laughs> But um, you're you're definitely right, Jeffrey. It is up to people that like us that have been paying attention, people like us that have been talking about it, even if it's been unpopular or you know we're seen as heretics. Um, and maybe hopefully not for long. Um, I kind of can't wait for the openness, both physically, uh, and geographically, and people's minds and hearts. Like once they're kind of ready to open themselves and and um reflect that, like I said earlier on this year and what's happened to them, you know, like my door is always open. Um, anybody who wants to talk, I'm here for you. And, um, I think there's going to be plenty of our people, plenty of people in our lives that are going to be ready to talk soon. And, um, I think, you know, we treat them all with the compassion that we'd like somebody to treat us with. Um, and yeah, point them in the right direction, encourage Mm -hmm. them to, uh, strengthen their immune systems like I've been doing all year, um, work out that brain muscle, um, learn new things and try to learn it on your own, you know, like read a book. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate it so much having, uh, that you reached out to me and had me on your podcast. I appreciate it very, very much. No, thank, thank you. you for coming on. Okay. Yeah. My pleasure. All right.
Well, thanks everybody for listening. You know where to find us. Um, we'll plug some stuff in the show notes and um, Jeffrey will keep an eye on your work and hopefully, you know, the calamity is over. It's reached its peak and we can all move on from this um, better and stronger and not in the way that Biden says build back better. You know, like we, we know how to actually build ourselves back, but thanks again. Thank you. It's been real. <laughs>